Let's take our Bibles this evening and go to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter number 2, and we'll be looking tonight at verses 8 through 11, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and we'll be looking at the letter to the church in Smyrna, and kind of a subtitle to this letter is a crown of life. So with the letter to the church in Smyrna and subtitled, A Crown of Life. Revelation chapter 2, beginning there in verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Smyrna is also known as the persecuted, poverty-stricken church. Of the seven churches, it is the one that is most known for its poverty, but also for the extent of the persecution in which it endured. Uh, It was a rival to Ephesus in the sense of, as far as an economic rival, Ephesus, of course, we learned was a main trade center or a trade hub. But Smyrna was also a very merchant-centered region. It was very well known to merchants. There was a lot of commerce. There was a lot of things happening so that Smyrna itself was rich. But the church was not. Uh, It was a city that was known by its great amount of wealth It's great amount of trade that was going on. Uh, It is the only of the seven cities that we're uh, seven cities and the seven letters that was mentioned that is still known by this name today, Smyrna. It's still known as Smyrna. However, Smyrna is not a Christian city. Smyrna now is a place of worship for Muslims. Smyrna is a place that now the Muslims have as a place of worship. It's also known as one of the only two churches for which Christ had no rebuke or any condemnation for. There are only two of the seven churches that the Lord does not say I have a rebuke of. That was Philadelphia and Smyrna. Philadelphia was known being a very small church, and Smyrna was known as being a poverty-stricken and persecuted church church. Now tonight I want to break this up really these verses into five main headings and they're just single word headings and we'll expound on each one of those. And those five main headings are first of all preeminence. It'll be the first heading. The second heading and these will all begin with the letter P tonight. Persecution. The third heading protection. The fourth heading perseverance. And the fifth heading promise. So within within these verses, we have these five headings dealing with the church at Smyrna. 
we see that there is a direct emphasis on all five of these headings that really help us see the outline of what is happening here uh, in this particular text. Now, remember, as the Lord is speaking to these particular churches, as He wrote these letters to them, He begins by often reminding them of one of His titles or to remember who He is. And we'll notice that the Lord Himself in verse number 9 uh, actually begins by, or verse number 8 rather, by announcing again one of His glorious titles. You'll see that the verse says, And the angel of the Lord, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Uh, this, of course, is a, a, a description of the Lord, a title. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. It is one of the glorious titles we spent an extended amount of time talking about what it means to be the first, what it means to be the last. And this is one of those titles. And what a glorious truth is here. He that was dead and is alive. Uh, Jesus is very much alive. He's very much aware. And we've talked about how he was walking in the midst of these seven churches and how even today through the Spirit, uh, the Lord is in his churches and folks, it is encouraging tonight to know that Jesus Christ is the first and He is the last. And we are only here, we are only here in this world uh, for a very short amount of time. And one of the things we have to remember as people who live through uh, this world and we live through this life, uh, this is a very short amount of time compared to what eternity is going to be. And although our afflictions and although our struggles are real and although things can get very, very dark, we have to keep in mind as believers that it is for a very short time. And because of the shortness of the time, we have to keep in mind that our Redeemer has already declared, Jesus Himself has declared, I am already the first, I'm the beginning, and I'm the last, which gives us comfort today to know that everything... And this may not sound so theological tonight, but everything is going to be okay. For the believer, everything is going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay. To be in glory with our Lord is, right now, it's really, we, our minds can't grasp it. Our minds cannot truly grasp what it will be to have, be removed from this world with its sin and its darkness. But one day, Jesus Christ is because He's announced that He is the first and the last. When He announces that He's the first, again, He is reminding us, even as Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, that for by Him all things were made. He was before all things. You think about the ramifications of not only being before all things, but also by Him all things were made. Remember, this is not just God the Father in the beginning of the creation. This is the entire Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All part of creation. Christ is a maker of this world. Those hymns tonight were intentional. If you didn't catch that, they were intentional to remind us that this is in fact our Father's world, but this is also the world that's been created before Him and been created by Him. He is the last. Everything that was made was made for Him, and He will ultimately be the judge of everything, the judge of all. This title, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, that has been a repetitive 
expression up to this point already in the brief time we've been in the book of Revelation. He is from everlasting to everlasting. It is the title of He who is an unchangeable mediator. He is our great high priest. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was the first and the very foundation of the church in which you and I are gathered tonight as a body of believers. He is the very foundation of it. He is the last. Ultimately, in the last day, when He finally comes and He receives His bride, He will take all of those who are His unto Himself. There's a glorious truth to remember. But Jesus also, as He wrote this letter and penned this letter, makes mention of the fact that He was dead and is alive. He was dead. But now He is alive. Why did He die? He died for the sins of His people, not for His own sins, but He's alive. He rose again that third day. He rose for our justification. He ever lives to make intercession for His people. He was dead. It's an amazing thing. You have to continually, continually say, remind people, Jesus was dead. And by His death, He purchased salvation. He accomplished salvation for us. He is alive forevermore. And His very life, His very resurrection is what applied this salvation to us. At one time, we were enemies. And yet, He reconciled us to Himself by His death and His resurrection. If we're reconciled to Him, we shall be saved by His life. Every time we commemorate the Lord's Supper, we remember His death. We remember what He did for us. But do you realize every Lord's Day, when we gather on Sunday, every Lord's Day, we celebrate His resurrection. We're celebrating His death and His resurrection. That's what He meant by, I was dead, but I am now alive. He is the preeminent one. And folks, when we understand these letters and understand that Christ will always have the preeminence and He is the object of our worship. But as quickly as He introduces this, as He has done in the previous letters, He says, I know thy works. Now every time we've seen that phrase, I know thy works, we know that Jesus is getting ready to announce, I know what you have been doing. I know your good works. I know your bad works. I know whether or not you have been faithful or you have been unfaithful. And this one he says, I know thy works and tribulation. So now we see that he understands that in this church, they are experiencing the second heading, which is persecution. In the early church especially, most persecution came from the pagans and the Roman authorities. They were the main persecutors. When Jesus makes mention of this, He's mentioning specifically those particular groups. But something happens in this verse that He makes mention of that is a little bit different. 
Because he also makes mention, and later he says, and I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now this is kind of a confusing expression that he's saying here. The Jews actually did join in in this persecution. And what he's talking about here, he said, these are people who say they're Jews. And the reason I read Romans 2 is because a Jew as a picture of those that are in the body of Christ is not a Jew necessarily by heritage, but they are a Jew by their faith in Christ. And so what he's talking about here is that they said that they are of me, but they're not, but rather they are of the synagogue of Satan. So we see that these are the evil forces that are persecuting the church at Smyrna. It's the pagans, it's the Romans, and it's those who claim to be part of the Jewish community and part of God, but are in fact not. Throughout Scripture, Christ reveals any that persecute his church to be the sons of the devil. Um, Make no mistake, those who persecute the church are of the devil. Those who kill the saint, and again, our country doesn't fully get this. We do not fully understand this yet. But I'm humbled daily when I'm reminded that there have been saints killed today somewhere in the world because they stood up for Christ. My life was not threatened today in any way, shape, or form because of my faith. Not one time was my faith even challenged today. My belief system was not even challenged. Today, I did not have to defend my faith in any way, shape, or form. Now, some days I may have to defend it, but I have yet to ever truly be persecuted. I've never felt threatened of my life being taken for the cause of Christ yet. But as I've said, I'm not a prophet, just read the scriptures. Um, That day, I think, is coming. We may not experience it. Our children's children might experience it. But it is coming. He says, I know your works. I know who's persecuting you. I know what they're doing. Jesus called the Pharisees in John 8, verses 42 through 44, he called those particular Jews who were against him, he called them of Satan, that you are of your father, the devil. Uh, here's what he says in John 8, 42. He said, Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father, the devil and the lust of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. God himself calls those who reject the Savior and persecute true believers to be of the synagogue of Satan. Now that's what the reference is back in our text in Revelation 2, when he says, I know thy works, tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy. They are the synagogue of Satan. To be the synagogue of Satan means you are not God's people. 
none of God's people are part of the synagogue of Satan. Now, there is not this moving back and forth between being God's people and being of the synagogue of Satan. If you are of the synagogue of Satan, you are not God's people. And yet, he tells them that there are those who have said that they are. There are those who say that they are the Jews, but yet they are the same Jews who rejected Jesus Christ. They profess to worship God, but their opposition to Christ shows that they are in fact under the control of satanic darkness. Much like we talked about on Sunday morning about demonic possession. I also think it's very true that we do not take seriously enough the opposition that you see to the gospel and the opposition and even some of the things that is ha- are happening in this world by people towards the people of God are the direct result of satanic darkness. Now, man's heart is depraved. There's no question. Man is capable of doing awful, atrocious things. But you realize there truly is an opposition. There's an opposition to the things of God and that opposition is of the devil. It's of Satan. These people that were persecuted in this church at Smyrna were not God's people. They were of the synagogue of the devil. They were the synagogue of Satan. They are under the control because their eyes are blinded by Satan. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church at Corinth about this, he tells the church at Corinth in verse 1 of chapter of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom... The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in them. There is this satanic darkness that is very, very real and is very much active. Jesus, as he pens this letter through John, as he wrote these words down, he's telling them, I know about your circumstance, I know about your situation. Now, the reason he mentions the poverty is because they were suffering severe poverty in a place that was very wealthy. But you'll notice that little expression after poverty. He says, but thou art rich. Folks, if you are in Christ tonight, you don't know how rich you are. Even by man's terms and by man's definitions to be rich monetarily financially our country is extremely blessed now i understand there are there are exceptions to everything right but jesus is not talking about earthly riches and he's not even comparing them our riches are the glory of his grace Our riches are not measured by bank accounts or by possessions. The church that has has been uh, duped into believing that the way that you influence society is by riches of society has completely missed the point. The spiritual riches that we have in Christ Jesus far exceed any earthly riches. 
And if we truly understood how rich we are, it certainly would cause us to live and think differently. That little statement is there because in the midst of all of that wealth, he said, I want you to remember, church at Smyrna, you are rich. And you're rich in the right things. You're rich spiritually. So we see that not only does Christ announce His preeminence, but He announces to them that there is persecution and they are under the direct persecution of the synagogue of Satan. The Jews who had rejected Christ have now are part of the persecution from the pagans and also the Roman authorities. But then notice verse 10, the third heading, is protection. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Now, a couple observations. He tells them, don't be afraid. He doesn't say, be afraid of what might happen. He says, don't be afraid of what will happen. He makes no question about it. He says, don't be afraid of the suffering that is coming. Don't be fearful of it. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. He declares that this attack, the synagogue of Satan, is very real. He's telling them, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Don't be afraid of the suffering you're going to endure. With certainty, the devil's going to cast some of you into prison. Now, not every child of God suffers the same. Not every child of God will be cast into prison. But there are some, and will continue to be, and have been in years past, who do suffer greatly. Who do get burned at the stake. Who are martyred for the faith. Now, imagine being told, don't fear what you're going to suffer. You know, we as Christians, we want to hear that we're not ever going to suffer. We want to hear that we're never going to have to endure anything. But Jesus tells them specifically why these things are going to happen. That ye may be tried. It means to be tested. We, better, we have to be very careful about faith that isn't actually tested. It's easy to have faith when it's not tested. Faith that is tested proves if the faith is real and if it's lasting. Again, he tells them what's going to happen. Don't fear what's about to happen. He says, be faithful. We'll come back to this. You'll have tribulation 10 days. He says, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. This is not just a command to be faithful until you die, but rather he says be faithful even though it will probably cost you your life. See, the reality is, is we're all going to die unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes for us before then. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But he tells them be faithful even though it's probably going to cost you your life. But he tells them, and he's hinting to them by this little phrase, you shall have tribulation ten days. 
Now, like many portions of Scripture, when we see a number, that number is not always a finite number. Like the idea that we know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That doesn't mean God only owns the cattle on a thousand hills and He doesn't own a thousand and one. It's a number to give us perspective. Ten days with perspective of even earthly time, but more importantly, eternal time is next to nothing. But he says in those 10 days, you're going to suffer tribulation, but he's reminding them that your sufferings will be removed and they will be limited. 10 days of tribulation has references throughout Scripture about being, t- being tied to tests. Daniel chapter 1, verses 11 through 21 might seem like an insignificant attachment to this 10 days. But do you realize in that passage, Daniel requested to be tested for 10 days when they would not eat of the king's meat. They would not partake in what the king was offering. And he told them as part of his request is that they would only consume vegetables and water. During those 10 days, Daniel was being tested. And during those 10 days, the Bible tells us that God gave Daniel and his companions, and it uses these terms, knowledge, intelligence, insight, wisdom, which was far surpassing those who weren't tested. In other words, their test gave them experience and it gave them experiential knowledge of God. Do you know what that's what that's what testing does? When your faith is tested, what it's doing is it is giving you experience. It's giving you knowledge of the goodness of God. So that when that limited trial comes to an end, Like Peter writes, purified, you come forth like gold. God doesn't test us because He has nothing better to do. He's testing us and proving us, and it is to give us more understanding of His goodness. These ten days, the point here. In Revelation and in many other places where trials and testings are mentioned, teaches us that God will limit and there is a reward for the testing and the tribulation of His people. Scripture also speaks to the limited nature or shortened seasons of trials and testing. And those times are limited and shortened in order to encourage us to persevere among believers. There's a number of passages I want to turn us to tonight to see these that show us the seasons of trials and how they are limited. They are shortened for God's people. Isaiah 26.20 is the first one we'll go to. And again, these are just verses, so we're not, we're not expounding all the verses around it. So we're going to just look at these verses and read them as they are. Uh, Isaiah 26, verse 20. Come, my people... Enter it thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Isaiah 54, 8. 
Again, looking at the, the shortness of the trials and the afflictions. Isaiah 54, 8. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Everlasting kindness. He's not just kind to His people now. He's going to be kind to His people for all of eternity. Everlasting kindness. Matthew 24 is probably one we have read and probably familiar with. Matthew 24:22 makes mention of the times and the tribulations being limited. Matthew 24:22 and except those days be should be shortened there should no flesh be saved but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Of course, the elect refers to God's chosen one. Those who Satan is going to attempt to deceive, is going to attempt to take over, Christ will ultimately save His people. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. I'd encourage you to write these down and go back and, and just meditate on these. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, earthly, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We have a really hard time doing this. We have a hard time looking with our earthly eyes and we forget how quickly all of it is temporal. All of it. Faith is eternal. Faith is for all time. And then 1 Peter 1.6. I hope these verses may be just reminding us tonight of this. 1 Peter 1.6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice... Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Don't answer me back, but have you ever been in heaviness? Heaviness through manifold temptations, through many temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see Him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Everything that we go through now is temporary. It is of a limited nature. It is a shortened season of trials. Back to our text in Revelation 2, you'll notice that Jesus makes it very clear that for some, for some, this would be unto death. 
Revelation 2, the end of verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Christ Himself says He will give unto those who are faithful unto death a crown of life. In, my, in the notes in my Bible about the crown, it says the victor's wreath is given to God's spiritual athletes as the reward of grace to those who persevere. Those who persevere. Consisting of eternal life. These tribulations and those that are faithful unto death there is a crown of life. This is a beautiful thing to consider. Even the Bible tells us that precious is the death of His saints. Humanly speaking, we have a hard time understanding these things. Matthew Henry says the tribulations are to test His people, not to destroy them. This idea that God is sending a test to destroy you, no. Henry says, no, he's doing that so that your faith, your patience, and your courage might be proved and improved and to be found to the honor and glory of God. Really, our testings are not about us. They're about God's glory. So we see protection. The fourth heading, we see perseverance. There's a reference made. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The second death, this is an expression or a phrase that's used four times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.11, Revelation 20, verse 6, and Revelation 20, verse 14, and Revelation 21.8. The second death refers to the final judgment of being sentenced to death and cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The second death is a reference to spiritual death. The first death that's mentioned throughout Scripture is our physical death. The second death is a reference to spiritual death. Jesus does not say that you will not endure physical death but he says you will not endure spiritual death folks you realize that spiritual death is far worse than physical death you realize to be cast into the fire that burns forever with fire and brimstone is the worst that could possibly happen to anyone and he says of my people you will not be cast into that. You will not experience the second death. This reference is a, again a reminder that He has made us a promise. The final heading, again, verse 11. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. This is a promise. We're called to attention here. That every person, every person on this planet should hear what's happening and being said between Christ and His churches. Folks, these letters are not for our entertainment. They're not even necessarily for our encouragement as much as they are to show us and give us comfort 
that whatever we endure in this life as His children is temporal. And that we have been spared from second death. Used to be the Gospel could not be preached and would not be preached without a mention of eternal judgment. There is a very real place called hell. There is a place where unbelievers will spend an eternity even though Jesus in these letter, letters He commends, He also comforts, He reproves and He rebukes, but He also promises there is a reward for faithfulness. Folks, we're supposed to gain wisdom from what we hear and what we see, what we learn in the Scriptures. This is a gracious promise to the believer. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. Folks, for every person who has lived, will live, and is living now, there is a first death. But there's a second death that comes to those who are not in Christ. It's a death that comes after the physical body is dead. The second death is unspeakably worse. It's the agony of the eternal soul that is separated from God. It doesn't have a limited duration. You realize the 10 days of tribulation in perspective of our entire life, the 10 days of affliction we might have, the 10 days of pains and sorrows we may have are nothing compared to those who are going to experience the second death for all of eternity. There's nothing that saddens my heart more when I hear somebody who mocks the idea of hell and says, this is just going to be a place of eternal fun. All my friends are going to be there. No, we're talking about a place of eternal pain and eternal punishment. And I heard a preacher say recently, the pain, the most painful thing that will be there is not the flames. It's the knowing that they are under the judgment of God for all of eternity. There is no shortening of it. Folks, you realize what he's trying to tell this church in Smyrna is very clear that you are going to suffer. And if you suffer unto death, be faithful unto death. I will give you a crown of life. But understand this, that though these suffering times are going to come and you may even endure death for my name, remember you have been saved and preserved and protected from the second death. Even the first death for the child of God doesn't hurt them. You realize when Paul said to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. He's proving very, very clearly there that even death is not hurtful to the believer because death means they're with Christ. But the second death not having power over the believer. This is indeed a great promise. Jesus' title yet again as being the first and the last who was dead and has now come back to life as the preeminent one. He provides the persecuted church with the promised comfort of knowing that because of His sacrifice, because of His death upon the cross, because of His eternal protection, 
Even for the saint that dies as a martyr or endures tribulation, that is not the end. But those who persevere in the faith will be rewarded. The martyr who dies is promised the crown of life. Folks, with these letters, these are great reminders of not only who Christ is, but a reminder to you and I what we should expect. But remember the promises of God. Remember what Christ has already done for you. We ought to meditate and think upon that every single day, what Christ has done for us. I don't know if we thank the Lord enough for sparing us from hell. It's kind of one of those things that the subject of hell has kind of just recessed itself to the back of a lot of doctrine and a lot of churches don't even talk about it anymore. They They don't talk about a real place. They don't talk about the judgment of God. They say, no, let's talk about how loving our Savior is. And by the way, there is none more loving than Christ. But we can't lose sight of that loving Christ. There's also a penalty and a payment for sin that cannot and will not and has never been overlooked. And yet we praise God as His children that He has spared us. This church in Smyrna, we don't know a lot of what happened to them. We don't know a lot about what happened to them after even these letters. As I mentioned at the beginning, Smyrna is not even a Christian city any longer. But I can take comfort in knowing this, that those who were in the faith and those that were His children, when this letter was read, they are in the presence of their Savior even at this very hour. Persecution may come. It may come in our lifetime. But take comfort in knowing if you know Christ as your Savior, the persecution and the suffering is only for a limited time. And one day, the entire glory of God will be revealed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your everlasting goodness toward us. Lord, thank You how Your Word humbles us by giving us reminders of what has been accomplished for Your people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that everything that has occupied our minds today and has occupied our hearts today would just be put aside and we would think upon the great truths of the promises of God that we've heard tonight. Lord, none of us know what tomorrow holds. None of us know what the rest of today holds. But we certainly know that there is a Savior. We know there is a Christ. And we know that there are promises that have been made to God's people that will endure forever. Lord, we pray for those who are without Christ at this very hour. Lord, there could be some here tonight. There could be some that are watching by live stream. Lord, we could have family members. We could have co-workers. Lord, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, according to Your will, that their eyes would be opened and their ears would be unstopped and be made willing to repent and believe the Gospel of Christ. Father, may we ever be about the gospel going forth. 
Lord, in times when we become discouraged and we become uh, maybe even defeated, may we remember what Christ has accomplished for his people. And may we rejoice in those great promises. Father, we thank you. We praise you for all these things. And it's in Christ's name I ask. Amen. Let's take our hymn books and stand and we'll finish with hymn number 264. 264, Lamb of Glory. As soon as we finish the final verse of this hymn, we will be concluded. 264, Lamb of Glory. Mm -hmm.